Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. I've spent nearly every Easter Sunday of my life in church, but I can't remember many Easter sermons at all. Can you? Actually, don't answer that since I've given the last last five here. (laughs) But I do remember one, or at least I remember one line from an Easter sermon I heard nearly 25 years ago. Before I tell you what it was, I need to tell you something about the person who delivered it. First thing I'll say about Father John Barton is he's a lover of science. A physicist made an important contribution to John's interest in religion when he said, it no longer makes sense to me to describe the smallest parts of matter as behaving according to fixed laws. They act more like a mind. The physicist wasn't a theist, as far as I know, and he definitely wasn't making a case for God but that even the metaphor of mind made more sense of the way the physical world behaves than of unchanging laws sent John Barton off in the direction of faith. John is also a man of experience. Specifically, he's been in recovery for years from an alcohol addiction. At one point, he'd lost nearly everything. I mean everything. He told me once that after his marriage had fallen apart, he was living alone in a small apartment where he lost I kid you not, his pet boa constrictor. You can imagine tacking a lost snake flyer by the mailboxes. That would go over well. But it gets worse. Sorry. It was some time later when John removed the cushions from his sofa and finally found the dead snake coiled up in the frame. It's like a bad Far Side cartoon. I asked him how he didn't know it. He said, I was drinking pretty hard back then still. What, you haven't had a dead snake show up in an Easter sermon before? Come on. The point here is that John was an Episcopal priest who knew a lot, someone who had seen a lot, and it had all settled into his person as a wise kindness and this empathy that he couldn't seem to help. Maybe you can understand why I trusted him so deeply. Which is why I can still remember him vividly that Easter morning, sneakers peeking out from beneath his vestments, saying, I don't know what you think actually happened at the resurrection. And I don't need for you to agree with me. But I think he got up. I think Jesus stood up and walked out of the tomb. Now I needed to tell you about John for his declaration to register as it did for me. He was no hard-shell fundamentalist. Ardell and I had recently become Episcopalians in part because we saw in John and in Grace Church this openness to our doubts and questions that we carried. We didn't feel like our acceptance depended on being sure about certain things. At the same time, as much as I still believe we need to, as Rilke put it, be patient toward all that is unsolved in our hearts, our doubts aren't what direct our lives most forcefully, are they? To live well is to live according to what we trust the most, what we believe most to be good and beautiful and true about the world, including perhaps the need to be patient towards all that's unsolved in your heart. So in the context of that little white church, 
filled up with a bunch of over-educated modern Episcopalians. Father John's confession that he believed Jesus stood up and walked out of the tomb at Easter felt like someone had opened a window and let a little grace blow in like a breath of spring. Father John was beaming with as much gentleness as certainty, not, not because he believed the resurrection happened as it was written, I think. I think he was beaming because he believed the resurrection somehow mattered, that it still had the power to heal. I don't know what, if anything, of John's faith and joy I can manage to pass along to you today, but it's what I want to do. What I want most for us is, as St. Paul put it in Philippians 3, to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I want Jesus' resurrection, whatever happened at the tomb that day, to change and heal my life. I want its power to change and repair this broken down world. I want it to matter to lives like ours in a world like this one. Don't you? I love Luke's version of the story. I love that the women who find the tomb empty are real flesh and blood witnesses, not just messengers to the men. Three of them have names, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Other women are with them as well. The only apostle to be named is Peter. These women are also characters of some depth and emotion. They're perplexed. They're terrified. They, they process the strange event with each other, piecing together things Jesus told them that were too strange to comprehend when he said them. Maybe as strange as the reality they found themselves in now. There's also this fact that they'd come to the tomb not to work out a theory or develop a theology but to tend with their very own hands to the body of their dead friend. Spices that they'd mixed with practices that had been handed down to them by other women across countless generations. These women, in other words, were people accustomed to dealing with what's real, even when reality becomes unbearable, even when it becomes unbelievable. What I want to say, what I want to trust today is that the resurrection mattered to their world so I can believe it can matter to ours. I don't want it to matter only in some invisible divine economy that I'll find out about after I'm gone from this earth. I want the resurrection to bring healing and restoration to this world of bodies that die and governments that are violent and corrupt. I want it to matter to people possessed by demons of addiction, or shame, or hatred, even to a world with too many reminders that we do not yet live in Isaiah's restored Jerusalem as too many people don't get to inhabit the houses they build, as infants we've loved don't get to live out their lifetimes. I want it to matter to a world like ours that is broken in the ways that our world is broken. So maybe this is why I came this Easter in search of a no-nonsense witness, like those women at the tomb, like a gentle alcoholic priest. Maybe most of all, I don't want my modern scientific situation to hem in my heart from the power of resurrection in my life. Because God knows we don't need more theories, more schools of thought and divisions. We need to be saved. On Friday, I was thinking on these things. When I pulled the book off the shelf I hadn't read in years, 
It's The Spiritual Life of Children by Robert Coles. If you don't know Robert Coles, he's a psychiatrist, a researcher, an activist who taught at Harvard for many, many years. He actually made house calls with a young medical, as a young medical student with William Carlos Williams, the poet. In other words, he has the credentials of a modern liberal intellectual in spades, which is what makes this book in which Cole's certainties and biases get shaken up by the children of people that he was raised and educated to dismiss all the more fascinating. In one interview, a 12-year-old Protestant boy, almost certainly a Baptist from East Tennessee, says, my mom and dad warn us that if we don't read the Bible and think of Jesus, we'll be lost. The devil will win out, and I believe him. I see the devil doing his work. My grandma says the devil has slippery shoes, and she's dead right. I have no idea what it means that the devil has slippery shoes. (laughs) And I'm quite sure I don't believe in anything like that devil the boy had in mind when he said it. But, But here's what he goes on to say. He says, we've got this mean streak in us, Grandma says. And we take it out on people. We express it. It's Jesus who helps us with that. He wants to be involved in our lives. And all of a sudden, I am right there with this little Baptist boy. Because I know that mean streak. Or that alienating streak. Or that destructive streak we call sin. And I have to admit, it can behave less like a fixed law than like a mind sometimes, at least in me. And I want Jesus to help me with that. I want Jesus to help me that, or else, to be honest, I'm not sure what this Jesus stuff is for. Because as I read, somehow my mind then jumped back more than 30 years to a market in Nairobi, of all places, where... A few other college students and I were shopping for cheap brass jewelry and sandals made out of tires, carvings rubbed with shoe polish so we'd think they were ebony. My friend Eric was tall and muscular, played for the college basketball team. Tall and muscular would not, you might have guessed, have described me at the time. (laughs) And the man we were dickering with on the price of some trinket said to Eric, you must be American, you're American size. This one, pointing at me, he's African size. And friends, I can still feel the mean streak rising, clenching defensively in my chest. The thought actually surfacing that I was American, rich enough to have a used Volkswagen of my own and three quarters of a college degree, thank you very much. Threatened with nothing more than the observation that I was of average height and kind of skinny, that dark instinct which has probably surfaced in some form every day since then as well. That instinct is exactly what that 12-year-old boy was wise enough to want Jesus to help him with too. I know. Can't you come up with a better sin than that, preacher? Well, sure I can, but I'm not. Because in a world at war, in a climate that's warming, When I can hear gunshots at night through the open windows of my house in a safer part of town, it's really easy to separate myself from the destructive power of sin in the world. It's easy to believe that my little mean streak has nothing important to do with what's really wrong with the way things are. But it does. 
It's a thimbleful of the same stuff murders and white supremacy and a whole lot more are made of. Christianity says there's a violence that keeps getting passed down from one generation to another, from one human life to another one, not through some of us, but through all of us. Our Buddhist friends, they remind us that suffering is not optional. To arrive in this world is to be injured by this world. They also remind us that some aspect of our response to the world isn't optional either. We're conditioned in our bodies and in our minds to respond to aggression with aggression. We have to accept this truth if we're to get free of it at all. And Christian faith says that while every human being does carry a spark of the divine, we also carry a common wound. There are hurts that we receive and send back into the world before we know what we're doing. A chain reaction of selfish, sinful response to a selfish, sinful world that we're very, is very much alive in each of us. But what neither spiritual tradition says is that there's nothing at all we can do about it. What I can stand here and say I believe today to my wounded core is that in Jesus, on that cross, the whole terrible chain reaction of violence returning violence across the centuries was broken. It snapped completely. Its grip on all things for an instant was unclenched. The world visited its worst, the worst of its violent ways onto Jesus, and in Jesus, God refused to return any of that violence at all. In Jesus, the pain that you and I reflexively send some of back into the world when we receive it, the pain we send back as anything from a bitter, unkind word to a simmering vengeance to outright violence and war. In Jesus, God interrupted that churning machine that we're caught in, and He returned only forgiveness, only mercy, only love, only life. That's the power I want more of in my life, don't you? The power of violence and vengeance, the power of shame and estrangement are very much alive and well. I can present my life to them with a swipe of my phone or the fanning of an old hurt. Easter hope is that our lives really can be fired a little more fully by a very different kind of power. We can present our lives to that power in prayer. We can present our lives to that power in service to those who are the least in the eyes of the world. We can present our lives to that power, especially in the sacrament of communion, receiving into our bodies the mystery of Jesus' body in that very moment when in exchange for its violence, the world received only mercy. That moment when it, which means we, received only new life in exchange for ours. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.